what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. weeks ago, I saw a post on the Conspirituality podcast Instagram account that caught my eye. It was a simple screenshot of a landing page. There's an image of a woman with blonde, Farrah Fawcett-style waves smiling directly into the camera. In the foreground of the photo, blurred out by shallow depth of field, there's a man wearing AirPods and a tank top looking at his phone. The photo gives the impression that these two are sitting by a pool doing something work-adjacent. Overlaid on the image is white script text over a hot pink highlight. It reads, Best Year Yet. The subtitle is, 12 Months of Private 2-to-1 Coaching and Exclusive Life-Changing Experiences. After that same text is repeated under the image, we get the price tag, which the Conspirituality guys have helpfully circled in black. The price? $100,000. Limited availability. Apply now. Matthew Rumsky, one of the co-hosts of Conspirituality, captions the image, New wellness price point just dropped. I immediately thought of a conversation I'd recently had with Michelle Mazur, co-host of Duped. She told me about a recent trend among some influencers to receive an intuitive hit during a live broadcast. This intuitive hit would inspire them to make an offer on the spot, say a six-month group coaching program for $20,000. No additional information on the program, no idea what you'd work on in the program. But if you also had an intuitive hit to fork over $20,000 and sign up, then the universe must have aligned to make that all happen. So it must be right for you. Now, all this begs the question, what the hell is going on here? I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Today, we're continuing our series, The Economics Of, with a two-part deep dive into the audience as a commodity and the economics of attention. This is the episode for you if you've ever questioned how people make money online or been skeptical about advice to use the same tactics. We'll get into how we're put to work as audience members and as consumers, how that work leads to pervasive attention scarcity, and how some micromedia companies leverage vertical integration to create mini-monopolies that allow them to charge exorbitant fees. Plus, we'll get into how this impacts the advice you might receive as a small business owner or independent worker, and we'll look at the impact of these concepts on us as consumers. So let's get into it. A little more closely at that $100,000 coaching offer. Now, when I first saw that Instagram post, I had no idea who the people in the photo were. But 
I had some pretty specific guesses about what they were all about. And turns out my guesses were correct. What I found when I did a little more digging on Steph and Josh, the two offering the 12 months of coaching for $100,000, is that Steph is a self-described multi-six-figure mamapreneur and adventurer. She's amassed a following of more than 78,000 followers on Instagram. That said, most of the posts on her account have few, if any, comments. And about six months ago, she stopped showing the number of likes on her posts altogether. Before that time, her posts were averaging around eh, 600 likes. And while that is a respectable number, it is also much smaller than I'd expect for an account with even 20 or 30,000 followers, let alone 80,000. So I'm suspicious about whether those 78,000 followers are organic or whether they might have been paid for. But look, I'm happy to give her the benefit of the doubt for our purposes today. Speaking of which, I don't have any inside information on Steph or Josh. I'm not judging them as humans or even as business owners. My goal is to use what I see on Steph's public posts and website to illustrate a larger phenomenon about what allows all sorts of people to charge exorbitant rates for offers with no clear value proposition or promise. Steph's Instagram account is exactly what you'd expect based on all of the stereotypes out there about who an influencer is. Photo after photo is Steph in a beautiful location, color coordinated in reds, oranges, and pinks. Her blonde hair is almost always immaculately curled in loose Hollywood waves. And when she's not posting pics with calls to action to DM her for coaching options, she posts reels, most often about some aspect of weight loss or fitness. Her account is perfectly attuned to what will attract attention. She leverages the symbols of American celebrity as credibility boosters. So when I click through to her website, I expect to see a super polished, perfectly rendered pixelation of success. That's not what I see, though. The website, honestly, is a bit haphazard and DIY, and there is nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't match her more curated Instagram account or the logos of high-profile companies like Lululemon or Whole Foods that she claims to have worked with. After my initial pass on the homepage, I find Steph's elite coaching offer under the Work With Me tab. And that takes me to the page that appears to be what was screenshotted in the post that set me off on this journey. I click on the Apply Now button under the $100,000 price tag out of curiosity about what kind of questions or information she might have on the application. But I'm not taken to an application. Instead, I'm taken to a Shopify product page. And when I get there, the first thing I notice, other than its complete lack of information, is that this coaching offer is now listed at $100,000. $30,000. There is still no explanation of what's being offered or what the coaching package includes. I don't know if I'm paying $130,000 for daily, weekly, or monthly coaching, 
I don't know if the travel and accommodations for any of the unnamed life-changing experiences advertised are covered. So at this point, I'm feeling a bit like I've gone down the rabbit hole for nothing. And while I could click the button to add to cart, I pass. There are some lengths even I won't go to in the name of research. So why go through all this? Well, Steph's online presence typifies what I'd call an attention business. Somewhere along the way, Steph attracted or purchased a large number of Instagram followers. With an audience and its attention in hand, she could then make offers to those followers. Now, a vanishingly small percentage of her audience will buy, but she's still gonna take home a solid paycheck. That might not sound unusual to you. It might even sound a lot like what you've done if you run a coaching or information marketing business. And you're right, this scenario is neither unusual nor all that different from what you might be doing. The market is full of attention businesses, from behemoths like Netflix or Fox News to micromedia companies like mine. Creating an attention business isn't a problem in and of itself, but it does open some economic doors that can easily lead to ethical and financial integrity issues. Before we get there, though, we need to take a closer look at what's actually being bought and sold in an attention business. To understand what's being bought and sold in an attention business, we must first understand attention as a scarce resource. Supply and demand, of course, is almost as basic an economic concept as opportunity cost. Essentially, the higher the ratio of supply to demand, the lower the prices will be. The higher the ratio of demand to supply, the higher prices will be. So if lots of a product exists and fewer people are looking to buy it, the price will go down. On the other hand, if lots of people are looking to buy a product, but there are few available, the price is going to skyrocket. When I see a sky-high price for something that I'm pretty familiar with the market value of, I start thinking about whether scarce supply is the culprit. Now, you don't need me to tell you that our attention is in scarce supply today. We don't have less attention than we used to, but there is a hell of a lot more vying for it. The demand far outpaces the supply we bring to market. But it's not only the multiplicity of media we might tune into at any given time that taxes our attention. It's also because we have to spend so much of our attention staying afloat. Whether you're juggling multiple streams of revenue, multiple jobs, multiple kids, or multiple health conditions, making your way in the 21st century economy requires most, if not all, of your attention. We use a lot of that attention to shop. For a doctor, for a new job, for new skills, for productivity hacks. 
We attempt to connect with each other, training our attention on social media platforms driven by advertiser needs. We even unwind by channeling what little attention we have left at the end of the day into TikTok or YouTube or Instagram. To one degree or another, almost every business relies on something scarce and desirable as the raw material for production. Some businesses mine that resource without a thought for sustainability. North Atlantic and North Pacific whale species nearly went extinct after decades of unsustainable hunting. Real estate markets often allow home prices and rents to reach untenable levels when there is high demand. The scarcity of gold in Europe led to the enslavement and mass murder of indigenous people in the Americas when new supply was found. Of course, it's entirely possible to steward a scarce resource as well, even while making a profit. Whenever there is a scarce resource with multiple commercial uses, you can be sure there are going to be a bunch of players vying for dominance. And attention is no different. Our attention has always been limited, of course. There is only so much we can focus on at any given time. And that means that attention is valuable. But the dynamic surrounding our limited attention has changed. The Berkeley Economic Review described our contemporary attention scarcity this way. What distinguishes the present day is that technological advances have made an overwhelming amount of information available, strategically aimed at capturing our attention. While it's common to refer to today's constellation of internet businesses as the information economy, it's probably more accurate to describe it as the attention economy. Attention economy was first coined by psychologist and economist Herbert Simon in 1971, stating what now seems obvious, quote, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. For his part, venture capitalist Albert Wanger argues that our attention is misallocated to superficial distractions rather than the real problems we face as a society and as individuals or families, too. In his book, The World After Capital, he argues that that misallocation occurs because we currently use the market mechanism to allocate attention. In other words, we allow the market to determine the price of our attention, which in turn determines who or what can buy it. If you've ever dabbled in Facebook advertising, you've seen this firsthand. When you place an ad on Facebook, you select the audience you want to see the ad and then set a budget for the campaign. Facebook isn't going to give you a set price for the number of people in your audience who will see the ad. Instead, your bid and others' bids for the same audience go head to head. The more advertisers vying for a particular audience, the more money each view or click is going to cost. And then that impacts how many times your ad will be seen by those you're hoping to reach. 
Actually, Facebook ads are a perfect example of a second component of attention scarcity. The price of an ad is determined by the supply of attention available to purchase, as well as the demand for attention by advertisers. Even if you're not paying for attention, you might be competing for attention with what you post online or the way you build a personal brand. So often, the questions I get about social media, podcasting, and marketing in general get framed in terms of attention rather than sales or customers. How can I get more followers? How can I get more downloads? How can I get more email subscribers? How do I deal with the absolute crickets I hear every time I post? Embedded in these questions is the assumption that more attention equals more sales and higher revenue. But I think it's really telling how the part people ask about most is the attention part. Georg Frank, an Austrian philosopher and architect, thought about this too. In a 1999 essay called The Economy of Attention, he writes, quote, Attention by other people is the most irresistible of drugs. To receive it outshines receiving any other kind of income. This is why glory surpasses power and why wealth is overshadowed by prominence. Frank argues that accumulating attention is a sure way to attract more attention. Nothing appears to charge advertising space with a stronger power of attraction than displaying a wealth of earned attention, he writes. It's the media's skill to collect and deliver the critical quantities needed to run gathering attention as a mass business. So, we know attention is in scarce supply. We know attention is in high demand, both by brands and by individuals. We know that scarce resources fetch higher prices when demand outpaces their supply. And we know that our attention is up for grabs to the highest bidder. Attention in this case is basically a raw material. It needs to be refined and packaged to be used efficiently for commercial purposes. And that brings us to audiences. The economist and activist Dallas Smythe started to publish on the economics of media and communications in the 1970s, right around the same time Simon coined the phrase attention economy. At that time, the television industry was still young and the business models behind it were just starting to coalesce. Smythe described the core business model by naming what he called the invisible triangle. The invisible triangle consists of the broadcasters themselves, the advertisers, and the audience. Unlike a two-dimensional retail business model where the retailer offers a product and customers buy that product, the media industries work in a three-dimensional model. There are the producers that create content, the film studio, the broadcast company, the newspaper publishing company, etc. And there's the audience that consumes that content. But the audience doesn't pay for it, or they pay something well below its full market value. So the advertisers pay for the cost of creating the content by purchasing ad spots. Here in the 21st century, this whole business model seems natural and unremarkable. You know what it was like to sit through commercials as a kid watching cable TV. 
You know that listening to the radio in the car means listening to an ad every few songs. You know Hulu keeps its subscription fee low by making you sit through commercials. And you know that successful YouTubers make money by virtue of the ad spots that play in their videos. Like I said, unremarkable. Even when Smythe was working, the ad-supported media business model, it wasn't new. It was just under-theorized in economic terms. So to figure out what was going on with that invisible triangle, Smythe asked a key question. Secondly, what is the principal product of the mass media? What is the principal product of the mass media? Or put another way, what is an advertiser really buying when they buy a 30 or 60 second ad spot on a crowd favorite TV show? What gives an ad value? It's not programs. It's not the editorial content. The obvious answer is that purchasing an ad spot puts your brand or product in front of whoever is watching, listening, or reading at that time. The less obvious answer is that what's actually being purchased is the audience's attention, which the advertiser hopes to convert into revenue. Smythe dubbed an audience's attention audience power, borrowing Marx's labor power construction. You might remember the definition of labor power from my conversation with Kate Strathman in episode 310. Labor power is the capacity to work, including one's skills, talents, and time. Labor power is sold to an employer who turns that potential for work into actual productive labor. Audience power functions in a similar way. Why do the mass media produce audience power? Well, to sell it to advertisers in order to make money for themselves out of the sale of the audience. Why do advertisers buy audience power? Because it's the only conceivable way that they could mass market the output of the mass production of consumer goods and services. Tupperware parties, door-to-door, mail-order housings, and so forth just couldn't do the job. People have got to market things to themselves. Audience power is the potential for work on behalf of the aggregate audience. The potential for us to focus our attention on what an advertiser wants us to focus on. When an advertiser purchases an ad spot, they're betting they can mobilize a portion of that audience power into productive consumer labor. In this case, instead of being paid work, the production labor of an audience is the shadow work of purchasing the commodities and navigating the systems necessary to make a life in capitalism. Every Friday night, Julia's job is to compare the grocery prices of our neighborhood stores for Saturday morning shopping. Shadow work is a term coined by philosopher Ivan Illich to describe what feminist activists and theorists described as the labor mostly women did to keep a household running. Things like buying groceries, shuttling kids to school, preparing meals, mending clothes. Smythe noticed that while the paid work week had been dramatically reduced over the course of the 20th century, the unpaid work or shadow work necessary to live had increased. While advances in home appliances and the availability of durable consumer goods seemed to reduce the amount of time spent on household work, the opposite was actually true. Not only did those appliances and consumer goods have their own labor requirements, But the environment that made them possible also kept raising the bar. As Smythe put it, 
There is an ever-increasing number of decisions forced on audience members by new commodities and their related advertising. So as our time in front of televisions or listening to the radio increased, we engaged in this new form of work. People have got to market things to themselves. Let's say I'm watching the latest episode of Good Mythical Morning on YouTube. Good Mythical Morning. Halfway through the episode, there's an ad break. The video that starts to play is for the Febreze Fade Defy plugin. When you can barely smell your plugin, what are your guests smelling? But here's the first piece of work I have to do as an audience member. I have to decide whether or not I've got this problem. Now, I've talked about my feelings, or more specifically, Sean's feelings, about Febreze and products like it. Well, to put it very bluntly, I think it's, an, it's a really big scam. So I'm immediately turned off as soon as I hear the Febreze music playing. But even an ad for a product that I am definitely not going to buy starts to put me to work. What are my guests smelling? Or rather, if I had guests, what would they be smelling? Does my house smell bad? I don't even have a plug-in. Do I need a plug-in? They have mobilized my attention against my will. This leads to what Smythe describes as the second part of my work as an audience member, learning that there is a category of products that can help me solve this problem and that people like me buy it. Now, the ad has already indicated the category of product, home fragrance plugins, or even home fragrance generally. They've indicated that people like me use this product by casting two middle to upper middle class women in their 30s or 40s, dress them in athleisure clothes, and given them yoga mats to carry. Check, check, and check. Finally, I start to do the third part of my audience work. I need to make a decision between specific products in this category. Febreze gives me some things to think about. Try Febreze Fade to 5 Plug. It has built-in technology to digitally control how much scent is released to smell first day fresh for 50 days. Of course, just watching or overhearing this 30-second ad spot is just a small part of my work. Now that I'm thinking about this potential problem and considering my options for solving it, I might take some time to do some internet sleuthing. Talk to Sean about solutions that are less irksome than home fragrance, or actually leave my house to explore my options at a store. Now, I think you're well within your rights to question whether this is actually work. We were hung up at the end of the hour on the question of do audiences, audience members work? I was giving you an ambiguous answer to it, and I still have to. Uh, it's not clear what would. Sure, they work, but what's the nature of the work? But this cycle of discovering a problem, learning about potential solutions, and choosing a specific product is the direct result of mass media and consumer capitalism. It's an activity that took up a very small amount of brain power before 1945 or so. Now, up until about the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, we were still focused, economically speaking, on meeting needs. The labor power of Western nations was largely taken up in that needs meeting work. But soon enough, we'd kind of taken care of the problem of having enough stuff to go around. But the labor force kept 
growing and we kept becoming more efficient. And that means we needed more jobs and we needed jobs doing different things than we were doing previously. So since about the 1940s, maintaining a strong level of employment in our economy has required the invention of novel consumer products and the production of unsatisfied consumer desires. As long as we keep inventing new stuff and finding new services to offer, we can keep people employed. But that also means we need to create a market for those new products and services. Luckily, the more people are employed, the more potential consumers of novel products there are and the greater the audience for advertising there is. This is what Albert Wanger calls the job loop. The job loop is pretty simple. We sell our labor to earn wages so we can buy stuff and services. That then employs others who earn wages to buy stuff and services, which then employs others who earn wages to buy stuff and services, so forth and so on. The job loop simultaneously keeps workers working and keeps consumers consuming, which keeps the economy growing and growing, at least in theory. In some ways, this has led to an increase in quality of life almost across the board. Wenger dubs it a virtuous cycle for this reason. Yet, he also argues that it's time to make this type of economic activity a much smaller part of our lives and a smaller part of how our societies work. Now, there are some holes in his logic that might have been overcome by enlisting feminist economists who study the ways labor is outsourced from imperialist powers to their former colonies. But I digress. In the end, there is a lot that I agree with in his analysis. Today, the job loop has also led to the commodification and commercialization of all facets of our lives. As we've needed to come up with more services to keep more people employed, more parts of our lives have been privatized. Today, you can see the market mechanism at work and services being invented in areas from therapy to intimate relationships to memories to tenuous social relations. To keep the economy growing and keep people employed, we are constantly inventing new consumer goods and services to sell, which require elaborate advertising campaigns to market to audiences. Those advertising campaigns leverage new ideologies, new sets of beliefs and ways of understanding the world. These ideologies manufacture desire for the previously unknown and unneeded product. Take social media, as media scholar Christian Fuchs does in a paper revisiting Dallas Smythe's work. Fuchs points out that after the dot-com crash in 2000, capital investors were hesitant about sinking money into unproven bets online. Then, a new kind of company with a new kind of internet product emerged on the scene. In the way that we are so familiar with now, there was no established market for these internet products, that is, social media platforms. There wasn't even an indication that consumers would care at all if these products came to market. So in order to attract both investors and users, 
the emerging companies needed an ideology, a narrative, a story that would produce the market. Soon, both new companies and old mass media were telling this story. As the story goes, social media platforms were new. They were the next evolution of the web. They would create new ways to participate online. They'd help establish new forms of economic participation, direct action, and political struggle. In short, the ideology made social media platforms irresistible to users and investors alike. This seems like ancient history now, right? Just two decades later, we can see this make-believe ideology for what it is, another attempt to produce audience power at an even greater scale and with far fewer expenses since audiences were producing both the attention to sell and the media that produced ad inventory. In the traditional media model of audience power, the audience was aggregated as a commodity, but disaggregated in its labor and consumption. That is, the audience was sold as a unit by program or time slot. The audience members, however, worked individually in their own homes. That made it a little harder to spot the advertiser's agenda. Advertisers weren't buying your attention per se, they bought the audience's attention at scale based on interests and demographics. While you might be interested in the product on display, an ad didn't feel like it was directed at you individually. Further, the act of being in the audience happened in households or alone. More people were consuming exactly the same media, but you generally didn't see evidence of that aside from the glow of a TV screen through a neighbor's window in the evening. But with this new media model, our audience power became palpable. Audiences are still aggregated as a commodity, of course, but we can now purchase audience power at minute levels of targeting. If I wanna reach, say, progressive women interested in podcasts within 30 miles of my home with an ad? I can, and for pretty cheap too. If a company wants to show me a series of ads after I poke around on their website, they can. We are no longer simply people surfing the web. We know what audiences we're in and why we're in them. And never is this more apparent than when we're shown an ad on YouTube or Instagram that clearly, clearly, was not meant for any of the audiences we belong to. Like every so often when we get a Spanish language Febreze ad instead of an English one. No hablo espanol. In the new media model, our audience labor and consumption are no longer disaggregated. We inhabit audience spaces together. We work together to build the scaffolding of these companies with our photos, memories, relationships, work experiences, and ideas. Together, we teach these platforms what people like us want to see and buy. Together, we construct the latent signs and symbols of our potential problems for them to exploit. And so the very features that made these products attractive in the first place are today sowing the seeds of discontent among users. As I wrap up the first part of this two-parter, I wanna come back to our attention business case study. 
what kind of work is happening in the audience for Steph's content? The Febreze example gives us a look at how advertisers guide the audience through each stage of work. Problem identification, category discovery, and product selection. But Steph, and most of us with similar goals, make the process less explicit. Her content isn't so much a manual for doing audience work as the Febreze ad is. It's an invitation to do the work. That's an important shift. When we're viewing the Febreze commercial, we know we're being advertised to. We know how that process works and what kind of thoughts it might trigger. But when we view an influencer's content or a social media marketer's campaign, it's a heck of a lot harder to see the pitch. The process of problem identification happens covertly. The category of products they want to pique your interest in isn't represented as something for sale, but rather a lifestyle or an ideology. The specific product they're offering might be hidden behind layers of obfuscation. DM me to talk about coaching, sign up for this webinar, hop on a free call with me. By the time we finally hear the $100,000 price tag, we are already sold. Our work as an audience member is done, and now all that's left is to pay up. Next week, I'll pick up from here. How do influencers relate to the audience commodity? What happens to the media we consume when everything is an ad? How do today's attention businesses produce audiences to sell to themselves? And truly, what can you charge $100,000 for coaching? Now, this seems like the perfect time to say, I really appreciate the attention that you give my work. Thank you. If you know anyone else who would benefit from paying attention to what works, I'd love for you to share the show with them. Now, this episode, like every episode, will go out in essay form on Thursday at explorewhatworks.com and in my newsletter, What Works Weekly. Sign up to get it delivered to you free of charge by going to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people, and the Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. <laughs>